On, all right. Well, we'll gather together and we'll begin with prayer here this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day. We thank you that we can gather together in freedom to learn more about who you are and what you've done for us through your Son. We pray, Heavenly Father, as we look at these things this morning, we would realize what the battle is about and that you deserve all glory, that your name will one day be edified and glorified, and that you do win the battle. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, you would help us to develop a a biblical worldview, the same worldview that the biblical writers had, so that we may know about you, your coming kingdom, and your form of righteousness that only comes through Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, this morning, it's been a while, I know, since we've been in the book of Revelation. So recall that we were just getting into Revelation chapter 9, which is the fifth trumpet. Now, at the fifth trumpet, we have something that's somewhat unusual, and that is God is going to be using the demonic realm now for judgment upon the people that dwell upon the earth. So this is upon unbelievers. But what I want to do is I want to take a pause to give you the background to the fifth trumpet judgment. Because as we do so, we're going to be looking at a biblical worldview, a supernatural worldview, in which the demonic realm is trying to usurp God's authority, his rule, and give a name to themselves rather than glorifying God. But we're going to see that he doesn't tolerate this. And so we're going to be looking at a biblical worldview of where these demonic beings come from and what the battle's about. But let me begin by reading just the first six verses of Revelation chapter 9. So if you turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 1, we'll read the first six verses. Revelation 9, 1 through 6, John said this, he said, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. Now, verse 6, he leaves off with this. He says, And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. Now, what I'm going to be showing you is I'm going to be proving that these locusts that escape here in Revelation chapter 9 are indeed demonic beings. And just real quickly, here's the reason we know that. We know it because they come out of the abyss. They're not just coming out of tall grass or the woods or they're not flying in a swarm. These locusts come out of the abyss. When we get down to Revelation 9:11, we see that there's an angel over them. You'll notice that most locusts don't have angels over them, right? And they don't hurt any green thing. They specifically go after men. And so we're going to see that clearly these locusts are demonic beings who come out of the abyss. Now, the question is, what in the world is that all about? <laughs> we usually don't read in the Bible that there's demons coming out of the abyss. Now, let me just comfort you. I don't believe that any believers are going to be here other than those who have, of course, come to faith during the 70th week of Daniel. But these are only going to be able to hurt those who are unbelievers. But that still raises the question, what is this all about? And what this is about at the end of the day is a battle, a battle between God's seed and Satan's seed. God's seed, of course, is first and foremost the one. 
the one who would come and crush the serpent's head, that's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But the seed also incorporates the many who would trust in him and who would be saved by the efforts of the one. So God has a seed. He has the one and the many. Well, Satan is also going to have his seed, and he is going to try to ruin and wreck what God is doing to make redemption for the world and to bring his rule. And so there's three things that this battle between God's seed and Satan's seed is ultimately all about. Number one, Satan wants to destroy God's people. Satan's seed is going to try to destroy God's seed, both the one, the Messiah, and the many. Remember, the many are pregnant with the one, but the one provides salvation for the many. So Satan's seed is going to try to wipe them all out. Number two, the battle is the battle to rule over the earth. Okay, now think about Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6. Remember, the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. And he says what? He says, well, don't teach, or excuse me, don't preach or pray as the heathen do, for they'll think that they'll be heard for their many words. Now, what's very interesting to me is notice the prayer that he gives is what we call the Lord's Prayer. Well, how many times, I know I've done this in my youthful days, Jesus just says, don't pray in vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. And then we go, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, the kingdom come, thy will be. You know what I mean? We can do that, don't we, right? But what does he say? Think about the words of the prayer. In the beginning, he says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is, he's going to be glorified. And he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So notice Jesus' claim in the prayer is that God's rule and his will would be done not just in the heavenly realm, but also on earth. And that's what this battle is about. The demons came to destroy God's right to rule upon this planet, as we'll show. Now, the third big issue that this battle is about is it's about the glory of the name. Someone at the end of the day is going to have all glory, and it's either going to be Yahweh, the true God of the scriptures, or it's going to be Satan and his seed. Okay, somebody's going to be glorified, and we know that God ends up winning. Psalm 86, 9, the psalmist writes, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. So God will not share his glory. In this epic battle, he will win, and that's what the book of Revelation is all about. Now, with that, let me begin by developing our worldview. And what I want you to see is that there's a supernatural worldview that the biblical authors had. And if we don't have this, worldview, we're not going to understand Revelation 9 very well. So what I'm going to do is basically put on the board the players within this battle. So I'm just going to put on the, the, think of when you play chess, you have various pieces that you have to learn how they operate and function. Well, we're going to be putting the chess pieces on the board as it were. Okay, so of course we begin with Yahweh. Who's Yahweh? He's the only God, the true God. He's the self-existent one. He is a non-contingent being, namely he is the one who doesn't rely upon anything on the outside of him to exist. And we know from logic and even science, the second law of thermodynamics, the law of non-contradiction, that if there was ever a time that there was nothing, you'd have nothing now. So something has to be eternal, and we know it's not the universe. And in fact, we know from science, from logic, and most importantly from Scripture, it's God. And Yahweh, in the beginning, as it says in Genesis 1.1, he created the heavens and the earth. Now, when we look at the heavens, the heavens aren't just merely the celestial sphere, although that's incorporated, but according to Colossians 1.16, incorporated within that are also the things that are visible and invisible. So I'm talking specifically about the invisible realm here, the heavenly realm, but remember he created the celestial sphere, the whole cosmos, okay? 
Now, he also created the earth. Now, in the heavenly realm, God has people, you would say, or angels that are called, I would say, vice regents. Okay, now vice regents means that they rule and reign underneath him. And I'm calling that the divine council. And you'll see evidence for that. The term council is used in many passages in the Psalms where God is ruling among his angels. So for our purposes, God creates these angels. They're created beings. And they're designed to rule and exercise his authority in the heavenly realm. Now, God also creates man in his image. And they are to bring his rule to earth. Now, of course, all of us know that at some point, you have some of the divine counsel. The angels rebel against God. And so then, broadly speaking, you have obedient angels and you have disobedient angels. For our purposes, we're going to call the disobedient angels demons. But you'll see that's going to be a category that's broken down further. Okay? Now, recall that they disobey God. That is the disobedient angels. They rebel against God. And so they also, one of them, in Genesis chapter 3, also brings temptation to Adam and Eve. Now, what happens to Adam and Eve? Well, they succumb too. Now, immediately after they succumb, recall in Genesis 3.15, God promises to send the seed, the seed of the woman. So one day, from the lineage of Eve, there's going to be a man who will crush the work of serp the serpent. But what does Satan do? Well, in Genesis 6, part of the divine counsel, the disobedient ones, come down and they intermingle sexually with women and create a race called the Nephilim. And this is Satan's attempt to try to destroy the seed, the lineage from whom the Messiah will come, and also to destroy God's people. And so it's within this worldview then that we're going to be looking at these demons in Revelation 9. Because these demons, let me point to the screen, that we're going to see locked away that are finally released are some of those who are disobedient here that went after women and created the Nephilim. Now remember, when we look at the disobedient angels, there's really two groups. There's the demons who went after the women, and there's the demons who didn't. They're still affecting people today. They still are in operation today. But there are the other demons who are locked away in the abyss. In Daniel's 70th week, you're going to see that they're going to be released. Okay, now, at this point, does anyone have any questions? Let's get them on the table right now. These are the players and the pieces. And I'm going to be exploring how we know this from the Bible now, in the next verses that I show you. Anybody have any thoughts or questions? Or Bob, do you want to comment any more on that? Yeah, this, this worldview is something that I came to see and know over 10 years ago when I was preaching through Genesis. Mm. And exegetically, I had no other way to interpret Genesis 6. Yeah. And I wasn't willing to go to allegory when the Bible doesn't say it's allegory. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And some of the top scholars also hold to this view, yeah. including Gordon Wenham, whose commentary on Genesis is the best one I owned. Yeah, it is. Very good. Yeah, and we got wonderful scholars like Thomas Schreiner uh, in the New Testament who also would hold to this view. And we'll explain where this comes from biblically. Yeah, Norm. Uh, the, the idea of uh, disobedient angels coming down, having sexual relations with women and that, yeah. uh, from what I have studied, that's one of the most hotly debated items 
throughout the centuries. Yeah. And I have not seen where there is a real consensus that that is exactly. I've seen there's five different views of people. Yeah. And a lot of people that I respect come down on different sides of it. So. Yeah. That's just my comment on it. Yeah, you know, I think um, I'll give you your money back if you don't agree. But I think by the end of this message, you'll see that I think the the exegetical evidence from Scripture is overwhelming, and I think we have to go through mental gymnastics not to accept, especially in Jude five through seven. You'll see exegetically, I don't think there's any way out that this is exactly the worldview that the biblical authors had, and I'll, I'll be proving that to you um, hopefully. So, but thank you for raising that. Yeah, this is this is one of those. Um, one of those areas where people, I think it's a, a, there's not a willingness to accept what the Bible teaches here because it seems so strange and because it seems to contradict a teaching in Matthew where Jesus says that the angels don't enter into procreation. But as we'll talk about that, that doesn't mean they never did. And it doesn't mean, what we'll see is that the angels don't need to in glory because eternity, you don't need procreation. But we're going to show that clearly this is the worldview of the biblical writer. So I'm sorry. Yeah, go what ahead. What I'm just kind of wondering is if, because it's kind of like a domino effect with ideas. Yeah. And so are there other ideas like, say, a post-millennial idea or a other kind of where there's, or, you know, like an Arminian and election, you know, kind of other ideas that would touch this, that would help us as we go through this to keep it in mind that this is where we get strength from, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, you know, I wouldn't say it's more, more of a post-millennial, pre-millennial issue, but what I would say is it's a supernatural versus natural issue, meaning when we get to Revelation 9, if we don't understand that these demons are locked away, then we're really tempted. To, like, let's, let's take, um, what was that guy who wrote in the 1970s, the late great planet Earth? Hal Lindsey. Well, what did he do with the locusts? Well, they end up becoming Apache helicopters, okay? Now... Apache helicopters is a very naturalistic understanding of this text, but once we have a biblical worldview to say, no, these demons were once locked away in the abyss and they're going to be let out, I think we can just read the text for what it says. And to me, that's the greatest freeing thing is it finally makes sense of a lot of biblical texts that are otherwise kind of shut out to us, and we have to kind of jump through, through hoops to explain them. Yeah, Bob. Well, believing that Daniel's 70th week is literal and yet future is yeah. important to this. Yeah, so that's people true. who discount all Bible prophecy and say all prophecy is history, well then they don't care about Revelation 9 because it doesn't really mean anything. That's a good point. Okay, so we believe Daniel's 70th week is literal and yet future and that during those seven years things will be different than they are now. Yeah, that's exactly right. Amen. Yep. So with that, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, Paul. Oh, yeah, we need a microphone. Oh, I'm sorry, our microphone guy's outside. <laughs> yeah, one job, and he's missing out the door. Yeah. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, Paul, Paul had a comment or a question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I had yeah. heard, and it was suggested to me, uh, from the eyes of Judaism, the original or sin did not come so much from the apple that showed the man's fallibility, but it came from Genesis 6, when there was this humongous, uh, there was this uh, interrelationship between mankind and another force. That's for them where original or sin came from. 
Yeah, you know, I would say uh, Genesis 3 is where we see sin enter into the picture, where Adam and Eve do rebel against God. They have the ability to say no at that time. They don't. They acquiesce to the temptation of the serpent. So I'd say sin certainly enters in. But what you see in Genesis 6 is an intensification. Um, as God hands off his seed promise, Satan responds by having his distorted seed, the Nephilim, come. And so the conquest of the land of Canaan is now more understandable. Why? And by the way, this is another reason why we should hold this worldview. You see, a lot of people will go to you and they say, well, you know, yeah, you say Islam is so evil because they want to kill the infidel, but didn't God do that with the Canaanites? But once you understand that the Canaanites are this bastard race, the Nephilim, who are these demonic, they're, they're inspired by the demons, they're given over, and that they're actually trying to wreck God's seed promise, now all of a sudden you see why the conquest of Canaan is absolutely so essential. So um, what I'm saying is this, the sin entered in in Genesis 3, just as it said, but at Genesis 6 you see an intensification of it as Satan responds with his Nephilim project. Does that make sense? Okay. So with that, let me get into the biblical data. What we're going to do is turn your Bibles, by the way, as well. Um, I'll have it on the screen, but it's always good to have the whole context in front of you. We're going to ask the question, from where did these demons come? If these are real demons in Genesis 9, why are they in the abyss and why are they being let out? What's this all about? Well, I'm going to show you that we have to understand Genesis 6 to understand Revelation chapter 9. So let's begin by reading Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. Again, Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, what we want to first do is interpret what in the world, as you see in verse 2, what in the world is this phrase, sons of God, refer to? Is it a re reference to, as some believe for centuries, the godly line of Seth intermarrying the ungodly line of Cain? That's the traditional Christian interpretation since the 4th century. Now, now, let me just explain. The sons of God in this view would be the godly line of Seth. And what they did then is they intermarried the ungodly line of Cain. And this marriage then was deplorable to God, these marriages, and it brought all sorts of trouble, namely these Nephilim. Now, let me give you four problems with the Sethite view. And it's very, very bad, I think, exegesis. Number one, the text here, both in Genesis 6 and also in Genesis 4, 26, that's another cross-reference. That's a reference to uh, this marriage and marriages that were going on, the text never says that only Seth's lineage called upon the Lord. Okay, that's just imported by those who hold to this view. Where in the Bible does it say only the lineage of Seth called upon the name of the Lord? Okay, when you see in Genesis 4.26, it says that, yes, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It doesn't specify from what lineage those people were calling upon the Lord. In other words, it doesn't say it was just the people of Seth, it wasn't the people of Cain. It doesn't say that. So those who hold to the Sethite view are importing that idea. It's not in the text anywhere. Number two, Cain isn't even mentioned in Genesis 6. Notice when it says the sons of God, it doesn't say the sons of Cain, or the, I should say the, the sons of uh, Seth. 
right? The sons of Seth or the daughters. Notice the daughters. The daughters of men is not the same as the daughters of Cain. And so to say that, well, the daughters of men were the daughters of Cain, well, where does that come from? Well, again, those who hold to that view are just asserting it because they want a different view than the one that I think the Bible clearly teaches. Number three, there is no prohibition in the text prohibiting marriages from the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Ask people who hold to that view, show me where is the prohibition that God gives clearly between the line of Seth and the line of Cain? It's nowhere. Again, that those who hold to this view are merely inserting it into the text. It's not there. Okay, number four, the sons of God are clearly referring to angelic beings, what we would call the divine counsel. And we can prove that because that's how it's used over and over and over again within the Old Testament scriptures. And so an Israelite who is reading Moses' words, when they'd read the sons of God, you, they would be hard-pressed to find within that the idea that these are descendants from Seth. No, their worldview is that the sons of God were part of this divine counsel. And I want to prove that to you now. So turn your Bibles, if you will. I'm going to lay out and show you that the sons of God is clearly a reference to these angelic beings or what we would call the divine counsel. Again, the divine counsel does not mean that they are in any way equal to God. It's simply a reference when they're called the sons of God. Don't think qualitatively that they're equal to God. God is omniscient. They're not. God is omnipresent. They're not. God is omnipotent. They're not. God is eternal. They are not. But the reason they're called that is because they inhabit the same locale. Because God dwells in the heavenly realm, they also dwell in the same realm. So remember, sons of often is used with the characterization of. Jesus uses that. He says, you're the sons of the devil. It doesn't literally mean that the devil had sons, but it's that these Pharisees and Sadducees were characterized. They had the same character as that of the devil. They were liars too. Okay? So the sons of God means in one sense they have something that's like God in that they inhabit the same sphere there in the heavenly realm. So with that, let's turn to Job 1.6. And you're also going to see in Job 2.1 that this phrase, sons of God, clearly refers to this divine counsel. Now, I had, Noel, you had, I had handed that passage off to you. Yes. And we'll get you a, do you have a mic? No. Okay, we'll get you one of those. <laughs> All right, so this is Job 1.6. So start there, then we'll stop, then we'll go to 2.1. Job 1.6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So stop there. Notice whoever these sons of God are, it says Satan was in their midst. Satan was among them. Now is Satan not a fallen angel? Well, certainly he is. So I think right there that that shows us that these sons of God certainly has nothing to do with the godly line of Seth. These aren't men. Now, what's interesting is this also helps us with our worldview of how God providentially controls his universe. Remember, Satan among the divine counsel is asking permission to sift whom? To sift Job. Now, God can either deny that or give it, but it shows ultimately who's on the throne is God, and nothing happens without him allowing it. And this is why Bob has written so many articles saying, look, if you want protection from the demonic realm, flee to Christ. Flee to Christ because he is the advocate that we have. He's our high priest. And because we have Christ, we have access to the throne room of God. Isn't that exciting? So he can protect and he'll use the demons. Remember Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work for the good for those who 
love whom we're called according to his purpose. So he even uses the demonic realm, the angelic realm, for your good. So that's what we can trust, and we see evidence of that here. Now, this clearly shows the sons of God then are these angelic beings. Now keep going then into chapter 2, verse 1. You'll see the same phrase used again. Job 2.1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Okay. So again, we see another reference that Satan is among the sons of God. Okay. Now again, there's no mention to men. There's no mention to Seth, some godly line of Seth. No, it has nothing to do with that. This is Job the inspired writer is saying that, look, Satan was among one of these sons of God. It's clearly a reference to the angelic realm, to the divine counsel. Now, the next thing I want you to see is a phrase that's synonymous, the host of heaven. And then what I'm going to show you is a passage after that that shows us that the host of heaven is equated or the same as the sons of God. And clearly, both the sons of God and the host of heaven are a reference to this divine counsel, these angelic beings. So turn your Bibles now to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings 22, and we'll start in verse 19. Recall in 1 Kings 22, you have God wanting to get rid of Ahab. Ahab's been a real pain in the neck. He's gotten Israel into all sorts of idolatry. And recall that he and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, are going to go to battle. Well, Ahab has all of these false prophets. And he says, well, they're going to prophesy, and we'll see if what they say. And, of course, the false prophets say, yeah, you're to go to war, and you're going to, you're going to win. Well, Jehoshaphat says, isn't there another prophet in Israel? And there was. There was a real prophet named Micaiah. Well, Ahaz says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, he says, don't listen to him. He only has bad things to say about me. <laughs> Why? Because he's the true prophet. Well, Micaiah reveals exactly what happens by the word of the Lord, what happens in the heavenly realm. So what Micaiah the prophet's going to do in the verses we're going to cover is he's going to pull back the, the screen, as it were, and we're going to look at what's happening within the heavenly realm. So listen to what Micaiah says. 1 Kings 22, 19 through 22. Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. Now let's stop there. The point that I'm making is that the host of heaven is synonymous with this divine council, synonymous with the sons of God. Okay, they're in the, their throne room. So these aren't human beings. These are people within the throne. These are angels. Okay, these are entities, I should say, not people. Okay, so they're within the throne room. And notice it says, the Lord said, who will entice Ahab, that's the wicked king of Israel, to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Verse 21, it says, Then a spirit, so notice they're spirits. These are angelic beings. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, this is the Lord, You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Okay, so again, we see another passage that shows us the worldview that God uses the demonic beings, the spirits, and the angels. They're all synonymous. Uh, again, you have good angels and you have demons. But in other words, they're all part of the divine council, and he uses that divine council to rule for his purposes. And nothing happens apart from his will. Okay? So, clearly the host of heaven here then 
is the divine council. It has nothing to do with an earthly army. Remember, sometimes there was this thought that the Yahweh of hosts means he's just the Lord of armies. Well, Savot, the idea of armies, yes, it's the heavenly host. It's the divine council. That's what he's the Lord of. That's how that phrase is used. Now, let me show you a passage where we see this idea of the sons of God connected to the host of heaven. Yeah. Whoops, we'll get you on mic. Dana's got something. One other thing that I see as a big problem with this idea of the line of Seth and the line of Cain yeah. is it attempts to um, divide all mankind living at this time into either descendants of Seth or descendants of Cain. Yeah. Well, that's the, they are not the only two children of Adam and Eve. Exactly. They have right. many other sons and daughters. Exactly. So where are they? I mean, it's a superficial are, division. Are they godly or are they ungodly? I mean, well said. Uh, the line of Seth and the line of Cain doesn't account for all people living at this time. Well said. It's just being imported again upon the text as, that is as if that's all there is for the sake of holding to that view. Exactly right. Very well said. Very good. I'm glad we got you on tape on that one. <laughs> Very good. All right. So I want you, everyone to turn your Bibles now to Psalm 89, 6 through 7. And what I want you to do is I want you to see this connection between the heavenly host and the sons of God. And I think we see a connection here. Psalm 89, 6 through 7. Let me wait for you to turn to it. Psalm 89, 6 through 7. Beginning in verse 6, the psalmist asked the question, For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Now, the term skies there could be rendered in the heavens as well. So the idea is we're being drawn towards the heavenly realm. He says, who among the sons of the mighty? Now, let's stop there. I don't know how many of your, how many, just raise your hand. How many of your versions say sons of the mighty? Yeah, many of them do. Um, that's what I think my NASB had. But what's interesting is literally it says the sons of El, B'nai El. Now, El is the term for God. Right? So it's literally the sons of God. So the question is, who among the sons of God is like Yahweh? The obvious answer was no one. Again, so let's stop there. If we're correct that the sons of God are this divine council, they're angels, here we see clearly that no one's like Yahweh. He's eternal, they're not. He's omniscient, they're not. He's omnipotent, they're not, etc. So there's no one like Yahweh. But then notice what he goes on to say. He says, nevertheless, oops, am I in the right, oh, I'm in the wrong passage here. <laughs> I got so many psalms written down here. Who among the sons of God is like the Lord? Obviously, no one. A God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones. Now, what council is that? Well, that's the divine council. He says in verse 8, O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Yahweh? Now, notice that phrase, O God of hosts. That's a reference to him being the Lord of hosts, which, of course, brings us to the host of heaven. Okay, so who are the host of heaven? Well, they're clearly synonymous with the sons of the mighty, the sons of God. And Yahweh is the Lord of them all. Okay, so he is reigning then over this divine council. So now you see a connection between the host of heaven and the sons of God. They are, in fact, synonymous. The sons of God is synonymous with the host of heaven, and they have to do not with human beings, but strictly with God's divine council, the angelic realm in the heavenly realm. Okay, now let me bring you to another passage here. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 82, 6 through 7. We'll spend a little bit more time in this later, but I want to introduce it to you to show you how, again, this passage refutes the idea that the sons of God are men. 
Notice Psalm 82, 6 through 7. Here the psalmist says, I said, this is the Lord speaking through him, I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Does everyone see that in verse 6 of Psalm 82? Sons of the Most High. Now, who is the Most High? Elion. It's God. So he's saying you're sons of, sons of God. But notice what he says. He says, nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Now, let's stop there. If the sons of God here, the sons of the Most High, are in fact men, what sense does it say, does it, what sense would it be for the writer to say that they'll die like men? Well, obviously, if you're a man, you die like a man. Well, the reason why he can say that is because they're not men. He's talking about whom? He's talking about angels. So these are clearly angels. They will die like men. Why? Because many of them rebelled against God. Now, what's interesting about that passage is Jesus cites that in John 10, 34. Now, there's a lot of debate about this passage because a lot of people say, well, clearly these have to be just human beings. And because they're human beings, Jesus, when he says, remember the Jews are rejecting the fact that he's calling himself God? And their idea, then most commentators would say, well, when he says that you are sons of God, and he quotes from this passage, they think that that's a reference to the rulers of Israel. But notice it says, you'll die like men. Well, aren't the rulers in Israel men? Well, of course they are. And let me ask the question, how would it prove Jesus' point that in fact he is divine, that he is God, if in fact that could be attributed to all of the Jews as well? In other words, if the Jews who are men could call themselves sons of God, well, then that's a term that can be used of men. Why does that reinforce the idea that Jesus is higher than the angels? It doesn't. Do you see what I'm saying? See, when Jesus is using it, he understands that they have the same biblical worldview that the sons of God are the angelic realm, and if it can be used of the angels, he's the head of the angels. That's the idea. Now, that passage is a clear, definitive proof text for the deity of Christ. He's the one who's the Lord over the angelic realm. Yes, he's the Lord of men, but he's the Lord of even the angels. And if you're the Lord of the angels, then you're God. That's the idea. Yeah, Bob. Are you going to mention Psalm 82, 1? Yes, we're going to get to that later. Okay. But yeah, but why don't you read it? Well, let me read it. Yeah, it's very from good. The Holman Christian Standard Bible. Very good. God has taken his place in the divine assembly. He judges among the gods. Yeah. So it's obvious what Psalm 82 is talking about. Amen. The divine council. That's right. Well said. Yeah. Yeah, Norm. What does it mean to die? Yeah, you know, think about they're going to, death is at the end of the day separation. Let me just put that question out there so everyone, we get it on the tape. Norm asks a good question. He says, what does it mean to die? How does a spiritual being die? Remember, death in the Bible isn't annihilation, but it's separation. And so we know, for example, in Revelation 20, that Satan is going to be cast into the eternal lake of fire. According to Matthew 25, 41, hell is reserved for Satan and his angels. And that's the ultimate separation or death. Now, the real kicker is, of course, human beings can be spared through coming to the Messiah by, and have atonement and righteousness and be spared from that final separation, right? So death is separation, and these angelic beings will, in fact, die and be separated just like men in the abyss, the, the eternal lake of fire. Um, and so, so, again, death is separation. So they will be separated forever from God and tormented, yeah, day and night. So very good question. Yep. Okay, so I think what we've laid out here 
is that clearly the sons of God is equatable to the host of heaven. And these are angelic beings. They're certainly not men. Is everybody with me on that? Now, let's turn our attention now from the sons of God. We've defined that they are, in fact, these angelic beings. But let's look next at the fact that they are creating this Nephilim. Who in the world are the Nephilim? Notice in verse 4 what I have in bold. The sons of God, if these are angels, I think we've proven that they are, they went into the daughters of men, regular women, and they created a race called the Nephilim. Well, the Nephilim, it's a very interesting etymology to the word. I spent a lot of time on this, so bear with me. Some thought originally that Nephilim came from the Hebrew verb nephal, which means to fall. The problem with that is if you had nephal go to the plural, the em, it, you see the em ending? Anytime you have an em ending, it's plural. Elohim is actually plural. But when it refers to God, we use it as a singular. Okay? So Nephilim is in the plural. Well, if you took nephal and you go to the plural, you get nepholim, not nephilim. Okay, so more than likely, the term actually came from an Aramaic term, which mean, was nephil. When you put nephil in the plural, you get nephilim. And what's very interesting is that Aramaic term means giants. What's very interesting about that is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when you get to Numbers 13, verse 32 through 33, uses a term for giants when referring to the Nephilim as well. So we have corroboration then that this term Nephilim does in fact mean giants, that the original root is from Nephil, not Nephal. Okay? Now let me turn, have you turn your attention to Numbers 13, verses 32 to 33. Remember, this is where the spies go out. They're at Kadesh Barnea. They're about to go into the Promised Land. They're to spy out the land. And they see these Nephilim. And you're going to see how that's translated here in Numbers 13, 32 through 33. You're going to see that they are, in fact, giants. And so that's the physical offshoot, then, of these demonic beings who went into the daughters of men. Numbers 13, 32 through 33. It says, So they, this, these are the spies, they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying... The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are of great size. It says in verse 33, there also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Now, why do they seem like grasshoppers? Because they're so small, all right? The Nephilim, now, we... Um, We've, Bob and I have been reading a book by Michael Heiser, and he makes the point that the Nephilim back then may have only been six foot six or something like that. They weren't necessarily nine feet tall. Um, according, it's, it, you have to think about back then, the average Israelite was probably five foot five if you were a tall one, right? So there wasn't a, the basketball hoops were a lot lower back then, right? <laughs> Didn't have the 10 foot hoop. <laughs> so does everyone see there then that the Israelites, as they go into their conquest, are wrestling? with here the Nephilim. And these are giants, all right? So that's the offshoot. Now, it's very interesting is I want you to think about these other cultures. Other cultures, like the Greeks, had a belief that they had divine beings that came from the gods, and they're called titans. And what's very interesting is that these divine beings, the titans, were these, these men of renown. They were men of battle. Well, you're going to see something very similar in the biblical data and what's interesting is the belief that the Greeks had is that they came down to a mountain, Mount Orthus, in Greece. What's very interesting is the biblical literature 
would seem to corroborate that, or at least um, I should say the pseudepigraphical uh, literature. Anybody ever heard of First Enoch? First Enoch is not a biblical uh, text by any means. It's not inspired. But that was also reflects Jewish belief that these beings came down to Mount Hermon. Okay? And I'm going to talk about why there may be a corroboration in the Bible with that when Jesus is at the base of Mount Hermon and you have the first confession, you are the Christ. I think there may be a cosmic show down there. So we'll talk about that. But I want you to think that all of these cultures within the day seem to have a connection to wanting to explain what these beings were. And so when we look at the temple prostitute systems throughout the world, for example, that we see in competition with Yahweh, these temple prostitutes, I believe, were probably the attempts of pagans to get into contact once again with these angelic beings. Now, can we prove that? No. But I want you to think about how these other cultures had also beings that they thought were semi-divine and they had come down on a mountain. Very interesting. Now, the other thing I want you to do is turn to your Bibles once to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, if we're right, and these Nephilim, in fact, did come, what's very interesting is, again, the book of First Enoch claims that they came down to Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon is significant because it's often referred to as Mount Zaphon. Mount Zaphon means the recesses of the north. That's how it's translated. Well, there's a battle throughout the book of Isaiah and the Psalms between Zaphon, the Mount Hermon, and Mount Zion. And the idea is, which is going to be the true abode of God? Is it going to be Mount Zion or is it going to be Mount Hermon? And I think the reason why is because, yes, there was this belief that when the angels came after these women, it maybe happened at Mount Hermon. Again, we can't prove it biblically, but that seems to be why Mount Hermon is juxtaposed to Mount Zion. Where's going to be the rule rule? Well, when you get to Matthew 16, remember Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is at where? It's at the base of Mount Hermon. Now, if Mount Hermon is in fact known as this gateway where the Satan tried to bring his own false seed, how interesting is it that Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? Now you have a confrontation at Mount Hermon. And God is going to first declare through the apostle Peter that Jesus is the seed, that he's the Messiah, that he's the true son, that he's the one who has the right to rule. All of those things are associated with being the Christ, the Messiah. And so he says, remember, who do you say that I am? And, of course, Peter says, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah or one of the prophets. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this is not revealed to you by flesh, but my Father in heaven. And he says, I tell you the truth, I will build upon this rock, remember he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, if we're right in this worldview, there could be a double entendre going on when Jesus says, upon this rock. Certainly, it's a play on Peter's name. We know that, Petros. He becomes the rock. However, think about this huge rock, Mount Hermon. If it really has this connotation with being where the demons came down, where Satan's seed came down, isn't it interesting? Jesus may be saying, and upon this rock, Yes, you're, you're Peter, you're rock. And upon this rock, Mount Hermon, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades won't even be able to prevail against it. It's a divine showdown. And I think that helps us understand what this text is and its significance all the more. Okay, yeah, Paul, we got a question here. And then we got Dana as well. To kind of intensify what you're saying, in that area was a lot of pan worship. Exactly. And so it might possibly be that amongst the lost is where I, why I came. 
Ex exactly right. That's exactly right. And uh, you have El, the worship of Baal, and all of these false gods. There was an unusual amount also on Mount Hermon, uh, we know of uh, different temples. And so there, it's, it's an unusual place to have all these temples. There's so many of them on Mount Hermon. It also shows that it was really a capital of idolatry. It certainly was. And so it's a great place for a showdown, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, Dina. I never thought about this before, but when you brought in that reference to numbers, yeah, where the people said, compared to these giants, we were like grasshoppers. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I, I bring that in with the Revelation in, in, in Revelation nine, yeah. where compared to God, these demonic beings are locusts. They're grasshoppers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Well so, said. Yeah. I wonder if you're right. I, you know, that could be a tie-in. Yeah. I, I think. I think too. The locust uh, implication is tied to Joel two in the day of the Lord. But you're right. There could be a, a a little bit of a play on words there. Right. Compared to God. Yeah. Who are they? Yeah. Very good. Very good. I just wanted to yeah. make a oh, yeah. the quick comment that, um, you know, here that the Greeks with the Titans, the God-man, yeah. and then the Nephilim, the God-men, and here's Jesus, Jesus Christ the stands God. there as the God-man. Exactly. The true God-man. Exactly right. Yeah, how fitting is that? Yeah, very good. Very good. So now, the, the other things I want to point out here is notice these underlines, these Nephilim. Notice it says that they were mighty men who were of old. Let's start with mighty men. Mighty men is the term gabor in Hebrew. It literally means a, he, uh, a hero, uh, a mighty one. This is, would be a, how many know of Audie Murphy? American soldier, won all, the, I, mean, I mean, he's just a, a legend in the military. Well, if you become a legend in battle, you're a gabor. Well, these Nephilim end up becoming a gabor, mighty men. They're legends. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't exist. It just means that their actions were so renowned that they end up becoming quite famous for their military exploits. So they're Gabors, but notice also it says that they are in fact men of renown. They're literally men of the name in the Hebrew. Now what you're gonna see is that these Nephilim become men of the name. Well, they are responsible, as I will show you, I believe, for Babel. And what happens at Babel? The people try to build a name for themselves. So again, remember I had mentioned that this battle is about who's going to be glorified. Is it Yahweh's name or is it their name? Okay, whose name is going to be glorified? Well, God's name. But these are men of the name, and they're going to try to make a name for themselves. And I, see, I think we see a connection to that when we get, for example, to Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 through 11. This is a text that was often very obscure to me, this Nimrod character. Let's read it, and we'll make some conclusions here about who Nimrod was. And you're going to see he's one of these gabor. He's one of these mighty ones who I think links him to the Nephilim. Genesis 10, 6 through 11. It says the sons of Ham were Cush and Mitzrim and Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba and Hevelah and Sabata and Ramah and Sabitika. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dadan. Now Cush, it says, became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalma in the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth, Ir, and Kalah. Now, let's start by talking about Nimrod and where his name comes from. His name comes from a term in Hebrew, Marad. So it's a form of that, which means literally to rebel. 
And what's very interesting is in the Sumerian language, Nimrod becomes equated to someone, a, a god, as it were, Ninurta. Now, the reason that's significant is because the Greeks take Ninurta and they have a god you may have heard of, Orion. Now, Orion is known as what? A great hunter. Okay, so again, in Greek mythology, you have this reference to Orion, and they're trying to, I think, pick up on some of these things that actually happen. Now, what's very interesting is Orion ends up being one who is confined in a pit later on. Very interesting. So that's where Nimrod's name comes from. It comes from a term in Hebrew, which means to rebel. And the evidence that, in fact, he is a rebel, notice it says he became a mighty hunter before the Lord. It says he became a mighty one on the earth. Well, the mighty one is a gabor. Okay, the same term that's used with reference to the Nephilim that I showed you in Genesis 6. But when it says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, realize that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says not before the Lord, but against the Lord. Now, in the Hebrew, it literally is la pene, which means before the face of the Lord. And we know there are some references to la pene, meaning he's a stench in the face of the Lord. And so I think a very good reading of this is that, no, Nimrod isn't looked favorably upon the Lord. He's an insult. He's a mighty one before the Lord. But the fact that he's a mighty hunter before the Lord isn't something that he's being congratulated for, but he's really trying to be a usurper. He's one of these gabor. Now, what's very interesting is further corroboration of this is notice what does he build? Well, in verse 10, notice it says, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Well, what's the greatest showdown in the history of God's people between what nation? It's Babylon. Well, he's the originator of Babylon. So now we're seeing where the Tower of Babel is coming from. Where does the Tower of Babel come from? Well, the originator is a gabor. He's one of the Nephilim. And he's going to make a name for himself just like all the others. Now, what other nation comes from him? Notice Assyria. When God's people rebel, what does he send against them throughout the book of Isaiah? He sends against them Babylon and Assyria. That's Satan's seed, as it were. And they're used to crush God's seed. And so you see this divine showdown even here. Now, what I want you to do is turn your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to see now how at the Tower of Babel, the desire is that the world would make a name for themselves. And again, I think you'll see a connection to here, Nimrod. Nimrod is obviously the originator of Babel. So turn your Bibles to Genesis 11, verses 1 through 8. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 8. It says, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves. So let's stop there. Notice the goal here is that they want to make a name for themselves. Now, who were the Nephilim known as? They were people of the name, men of the name. Okay, so Nimrod, a Gabor, founds Babel, and at Babel, they try to make a name for themselves. They want to have a name to be glorified rather than God. It says, let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the full face of the earth. In other words, they'll do what God had commanded them to do. Verse 5, it says, the Lord came down to see the city, here's a divine visitation, and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people, 
And they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. So here you have the Tower of Babel built, and it's built by more than likely by this Nimrod and the others, and they want to make a name for themselves. And I think that that shows us a tie-in again to the Nephilim. By the way, dear brothers and sisters, this shouldn't surprise us. What did the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians 6? He said, our battle isn't with flesh and blood, but with what? Principalities, powers, authorities, and rulers, etc. It's with the, it's with the dem demonic realm, isn't it? That's where our battle comes from. Yeah. Um, so the Nephilim were, you know, in Genesis 6, yeah. they come up. And then, of course, the flood comes and destroys everybody. Yep. But since the Nephilim are angelic beings, they just pop up again. Are they continuing even after the flood to enter into women? Is that Well, you know, it's interesting. That, that's something that we don't have a lot of data on. And we'll talk about that. Why, if the flood was designed to wipe out the Nephilim and others as well, why do they pop up again? In other words, why does Joshua have to contend with them? Why does David? And there's two thoughts. One is that the flood was just local, which I don't hold to. I think it was a universal flood. The other view is seen in Genesis 6. Let me back up, in fact. Notice here it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. The when in the Hebrew could be rendered whenever. And the implication, if it's whenever, it could imply that this would happen time and time again. But at a certain point, God does take away this tangibility, and we'll talk about that. The tangibility is taken away, but I, don't, I can't say it happened on such and such a date. But at a certain point, there's no longer tangible contact between humans and these angelic beings. Well, that's what's so frightening about the 70th week of Daniel, because now that tangibility is given back. And so within the 70th week of Daniel, it's as if God is saying to those who have worshipped idols all these years and have turned against his son, you want the demonic being? You want to be part of Satan's seed? Here you go. And he gives them the tangibility back. Okay, so I'll have a slide. I'll address that again. But it's a very good question. It's something we just don't have a lot of data on. So, yeah, very good. Bob, do you want to add anything to that? Okay. Well, I, I know we're almost out of time. What I'm going to do is I'm going to start showing you Let's try to finish Genesis 12 here if we can. What I want you to see is that the Tower of Babel is built and people want to make a name for themselves. And it's inspired, I think, by these Nephilim. But notice what God does right after Genesis 11 is he takes a man, Abraham, and he's going to make his name great. Do you see the showdown? He's going to start over with a new humanity. Notice here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it says, Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So let's stop there. Where is Abram coming from? Well, he's coming from the land that was founded by Nimrod, by one of the Nephilim. So now God is calling him out, out from the land of Ur, out from the land of the Chaldeans, which is established by the Nephilim. Okay, if this theory is correct, right? So now God is going to take him, and he's going to make him a great nation. That's what he says in verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, and will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
So now notice it's no longer going to be the Nephilim. They're going to have this great name. God is going to make a great name through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, through David, through the seed. It's his seed, not Satan's seed. What happens, of course, is Israel ends up rebelling against God. And that's what Bob is showing us in Acts 7. What does God do with them when they rebel? He puts them back under the host of heaven. He says, you wanted to worship the host of heaven rather than me? Well, you're back under them. The 70th week of Daniel, dear brothers and sisters, that we're reading about in Revelation 4 all the way to chapter 19 is about God taking them back again. Yes, they're now under the host of heaven. As we speak, the nation of Israel is cursed in the sense that they're worshiping not Christ, but the host of heaven. But in the 70th week of Daniel, God is going to turn that and he's going to wrestle them out and he's going to make their name great because they, are to, they were designed to make God's name great, that he would be glorified. And of course, through Abraham comes the Messiah. And whoever trusts upon the Messiah is going to have a name that's written by God, right? They're going to worship God and bring him glory and one day be glorified and no longer sin and finally bring honor and glory to God's name rather than be rebels as we saw at Babel. That's what the battle's about. So with that, that's all the time I have. We'll have to continue more uh, when we get into the next week. And I, I'm going to be doing the next two sermons, so it'll be a few weeks. But then we'll show you in Jude 5 through 7 that indeed there's judgment coming upon them. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Bob. If you want to, you want to do your own research, I, I'm going through this book now second time. The Unseen Realm, Michael S. Heiser. It's very interesting. It'll explain all this yeah. and much more. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Does anybody have any questions? We got a couple minutes. Any questions, comments, concerns? Yeah. Yeah. In you saying this stuff is how, you know, the importance of God's name being um, magnified, glorified. Yeah. And Romans 2 24, where it says the name of the Lord is blasphemed among the nations because yes. of you, because of what Israel, you know. Exactly. It's blasphemed rather than honored. Yeah, because they worship the host of heaven, the demonic realm, rather than Yahweh. Right. Amen. And that's going to be all remedied in the 70th week of Daniel. And it'll all be for the praise of God. Yeah. Well, with that, we'll close down in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we had time to look into these things. I pray, Lord, that as we look further, into the judgment of these demonic beings and what Satan has done, we'll be reassured again that you rule and reign and that our faith is well-placed in your Son, that you are indeed creating a new humanity who will one day reign upon the earth. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the ability to look at these things, to be able to extol and to give you praise, extol your name. We long for the day that we'll be around your throne giving you praise forever. You deserve all praise, honor, and glory. We pray praise you, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.